thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is advances, questions, research, technology, unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, Merry Christmas, and welcome to The Naked Scientist, the program that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine. With me, Chris Smith. And this week, we're getting into the festive spirit to explore some of the science surrounding Christmas. Coming up, is the doctor's office coffee machine infectious? That and more entertaining stories from the Christmas edition of the British Medical Journal. Also, the science of champagne and the 150 million year old marine reptile that has a primetime Christmas slot on TV. From Cambridge University's Institute of Continuing Education, this is The Naked Scientists. Up first this week, each year the British Medical Journal publishes a special Christmas and New Year edition that welcomes more light-hearted fare and satire from the world of science. It gives doctors the chance to let their research hair down a bit. So what Christmas crackers have made it in this year? Well, here to tell us is the editor-in-chief of the BMJ, Cameron Abassi. So the first one is a study of the safety of cola in resolving what we call an esophageal food bolus. That means you've got something stuck in your throat, and whether or not drinking cola can relieve that. They evaluated 51 patients, and they were either given cola to drink, and they drank it in sips, or they were just observed. What they discovered was, possibly disappointingly, that the cola had no effect. Although it wasn't shown to be beneficial, there was no statistically significant effect of cola drinking, In a large sample, possibly if they'd had a slightly different power calculation, there might be benefit. It doesn't rule out benefit of cola, but neither does it demonstrate it. I've heard people say that cola's a bit corrosive, but what's the the mechanism of action then? Is it it the caffeine that perhaps makes things constrict a bit better and push the stuck stuff, whatever's clogging up your esophagus, out the way? It possibly improves the motility of your esophagus and pushes the bolus or whatever the food is that's impacted into your stomach. I'd say the mechanism is still to be determined. We don't even know that it's effective at this point. The next story you've got for me is one very close to my heart because it concerns what I do for a job, where I work, but also a substance which I cannot live without. There's quite a sort of drinking theme here in this year's Christmas issue. So this is all about coffee. I mean, we all want coffee at work. We're the same at the BMJ. You know, we're all crowded around the coffee machine. We call it the medicine dispenser. (laughs) Yeah, precisely. So what we're looking at is whether or not by touching those machines, we might be spreading infection. And of course, all that's very topical with everything that's just happened with the pandemic, where there's being encouraged to wash our hands and sterilise surfaces. And one of those surfaces we've probably forgotten about is the good old coffee machine. And this study, it looks at 
whether there are pathogens on coffee machines on different bits of coffee machines and it finds that there are so uh, the question then is should we be concerned about that or not and what these researchers find is well they tend to be commensal or atypical pathogens ones that aren't medically relevant so the bottom line is there are pathogens there still wash your hands and obviously clean the machine that's good practice and to be encouraged but what we don't want and we aren't supporting is a ban on coffee machines so i think this is good news phew i'm relieved and to round up <laughs> the the last one to finish i would say to finish us off but that's got the wrong sort of connotation hasn't it <laughs> this one is all about patient satisfaction very important but where the physician is and sits and where you put chairs we do want to publish papers with a serious message and there's something serious here which is about better communication with patients and what and if you've been in hospital like being either as patients or visiting somebody you often see the medical team or the surgical team wandering around the hospital going from patient to patient and the question these researchers are asking is whether or not by sitting next to the patient by facing them whether or not that means that there's better patient satisfaction in the encounter. And what they found is that, first of all, by putting a chair there, inevitably it means that, that the consultant or the doctor sits down more often. That's no surprise. But secondly, patients feel more satisfied by the conversation. And thirdly, it doesn't seem to take up more time than if they just stood. So this was the mere fact that if you put a chair with a patient in the right sort of position in relation to the patient, then the person who's talking to the patient comes and sits in it. So you get a sort of more eye level conversation rather than somebody looking down on top of you, as it were. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the criticisms of traditional medicine is that it's very patriarchal. You know, somebody very senior comes to see you in hospital, they sour above you, they talk down to you. You don't listen very much to what you've got to say as the patient. And this is changing that power dynamic in that you're, you're sitting down, you're at the same eye level, and that enables a conversation and should encourage you as the doctor to listen more to the patient, should encourage the patient to feel that they're speaking more directly on the same level with their clinician. So Clearly, again, we need to see whether something as simple as this could lead to any clinical benefit. We may never be able to demonstrate that, but surely this has to be one of those uh, situations where anything that encourages a, a better conversation has to be a good thing. The people in charge in the hospital, of course, are the infection control team. So what do they say about this? Are they happy with the, the doctors sitting on the chairs, spreading diseases? <laughs> well... <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure a doctor sitting on the chair is the most problematic mode of transmitting diseases. We've already banned ties from hospitals because there might be a vector of transmission. There wasn't much strong evidence around that. I don't think sitting on a chair is going to cause problems. If anything becomes widely adopted, there'll always be people who will try to stop you doing it. But I can't see that mechanism, personally. Cameron Abassi there, Editor-in-Chief of the British Medical Journal. Now, many of us will have the opportunity over the coming days to sit down with a nice glass of wine or two. And arguably, one of the best ways to get dinner off to a flying start is to pop open a bottle of bubbly. But which one? And why does the fizz seem to do the biz? Or is it all just in our heads? As well as being an internationally regarded immunologist, Cambridge University's Claire Bryant is also a wine buff. And she took me to her local eatery in Saffron Warden, Chaters, that also doubles 
as a distillery. It's that time of year, Chris, and one of the things that I think is particularly interesting about champagne is the whole history and science behind it, and what does a bubble do? So there's two elements to this. So there's the method traditionnel, which is the way in which champagne is made, but it's also the way in which many sparkling wines across the world are made, including England, which produces particularly fine sparkling wines. So today we'll compare a champagne with an English sparkling wine. I'm looking forward to that bit. How far back in history does it go? Uh, 1600s, the uh, Champenois, the people in Champagne, decided to make wine to try and compete with the people in Burgundy. They were making wine with one particular grape, Pinot Noir, and along the way, one of the things they found was because they were further north than Burgundy, it was colder. During the fermentation process, they were getting a stopping point when the wine was too cold. And then when the temperature warmed up again, they were getting fermentation occurring again. And what they found is that sometimes their wines were fizzy. Now, initially, this caused total horror because this was a wine fault and then after a while they tried marketing it and particular to us Brits and the Brits decided they really liked fizzy wine and so by around the mid 17 1800s sparkling wine was really something they were working hard to produce the challenge was though to get nice sparkling wine you need to have the fermentation in the bottle which means the bottles need to be very strong so it wasn't really until about the early 1900s manufacturing processes started to produce bottles that were strong enough and after that production kicked off and the champenoise were in business. What's involved in actually making it though? So there's two phases of fermentation which is absolutely key. So you harvest the grapes which are three usually Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier and Chardonnay and they make what's called a base wine. Then they put this wine into bottles with some more yeast, a little bit of sugar and then the wine undergoes a secondary fermentation in the bottle and that's what generates the gas and then what they do after a while They take the old yeast out and then they dose it up with a little bit more sugar, sometimes to alter the sweetness of the wine, and that's it. How did the bubbles contribute to the wine, though? Is it just that it's fizzy and frothy and it looks exciting, or do they actually affect the chemistry? It actually contributes to the taste and the flavour because the bubbles act as a carrier. They carry volatile molecules all wrapped up in these little parcels of carbon dioxide and then as the bubbles burst they release the smell and the aromas and everything that's associated with the wine in a very concentrated way across the top of your glass so whereby when you normally taste a glass of wine you might swill the glass to try and get the aromas out you don't need to do that with champagne that's what the bubbles do and that's what makes the wine so exciting i think we should try some what have you brought along for us to consider so i bought two half bottles of wine today um, Where's the other half? Have you already drunk it? Um, Chris, don't be so churlish. It's lunchtime. So what I've bought is a half bottle of rosé champagne because rosé champagne is very interesting. That's pink champagne. And what they do to make rosé champagne is they add a little bit of still red wine to the bottle to give it a pink colour. So that's a traditional champagne from France. And then I've also bought a half bottle of white sparkling wine from Nine Timber, which is one of the oldest English champagne makers in the UK. I think we should pop some corks, but we've got to be careful how we do this, Claire, because there's a paper in the British Medical Journal for Christmas that cautions us how to safely open champagne bottles because apparently a very high proportion of eye injuries are caused by escaping champagne corks. Yeah, I saw that. That's from our colleagues in ophthalmology. And and you can totally understand that because a cork comes out at quite a rate. But actually their advice on how to uncork a bottle of champagne is very relevant to maintaining the flavour as well because if you fire that cork out at a great rate of knots, 
you're firing out lots and lots of CO2 and you're reducing the flavour. So the best way to do it, take the wire off, pop a tea towel over the top, gradually ease out the cork and then gently pour your wine, preferably down the side of the glass because if you fire it into the middle of the glass, you're losing your bubbles. There's about a million bubbles in 100 mils of champagne. So you want to keep those as much as possible. It sounds like the guy who counted the perforations in a Tetley tea bag, but which one are we going to start with? Would you like to start with the rosé? That's how you open a bottle of champagne, Chris. I'm impressed. None wasted. None wasted. That's the most <laughs> That's important That's the key thing, isn't it? Point. Right, so I've got a couple of glasses. Just one. Beautiful. So as you can see, Chris, in your glass, there's little bubbles just coming up to the top and they'll be bringing all the aromas up to the surface. Take a deep sniff. It's a very fruity number. There should be fruits, cherries, cranberries, that kind of flavour actually in there. Tell me what you taste. Mmm, it's beautiful. Cherries, lots of... I can see why they're saying cranberries and cherries. Didn't get the smell so much, but the flavour, big hit, beautiful. And I can taste a little toastiness on the back as well. And it's that combination of fruit toast and the bubbles and you can feel the bubbles on your your tongue as well that coupled to the texture that's what really helps carry the wine so yeah it is it is delicious i have to say i probably wouldn't have considered something like that a rosé and i didn't realize that they made it by adding red wine to the mixture and and it's delightful yeah it will work really well with smoked salmon any of the usual sort of traditional starters Let's try the English one. I'm really keen to get stuck into that and uh, see how it compares. The people having lunch in here are going to think we've got a lot to celebrate, Claire. (laughs) (laughs) It's the end of... We survived another year, Chris. There's a lot to celebrate. So you can see something else interesting here as well, Chris, which is you can see a sort of moussey stuff that comes out on the top. So that throff is due to the protein in the wine, actually. Have a sniff. This doesn't have the same fruitiness. This is more of just what a white wine would smell like to me. It doesn't have that same fruity sparkliness. Yeah, I agree. There's no cherries there, right? It's nice, though. Mmm. It's fruity, but I couldn't put my finger on exactly what fruit. It's yeah, just... It's, it's, yeah, apples, maybe. It's, it's certainly fruity, but it doesn't have the intrigue that the other one did. That tantalised my taste buds. Yep, I would agree. This is more of a Chardonnay flavour through it. It's a different beast, but it's a beautiful beast. They're two, they're two different things. And that's one of the reasons why I bought them, because I knew the, play, the f- flavour profile would be different. And lastly, what should I eat with this? Because there's a lot made of horses for courses, wines for different dishes. So what's a really good complement for these sorts of beverages? So one of the things that's very interesting about champagne is that actually it balances out with quite a lot of different foods. But in particular, it works well with the umami food profile so things like smoked salmon which has been an obvious pairing as you know but it's it's the kind of complex flavor the umami flavor that you get with smoked salmon but also with ham and various other savories and in fact in front of us we have a little bit of ham and we shall shortly try it with the uh, sparkling wines and see what we think so there you go we've sorted out at least a start to our christmas dinner this year cheers claire thank you very much for doing this for us and uh, now i know a bit more about champagne i'm really grateful happy christmas chris Professor Claire Bryant from the University of Cambridge. Thanks to her and also thanks to Chaters in Saffron Warden for letting us loiter over our champagne in there. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire.
cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith. Still to come, what the psychologists say is the secret to good gift giving. But first, the skull of an enormous sea monster called a pliosaur has been extracted from the cliffs of the Jurassic Coast in southern England. The marine reptile would once have ruled the waves 150 million years ago and its two-metre-long skull is one of the most complete specimens of its type ever discovered. It's so special, it will feature in a David Attenborough programme on BBC One on New Year's Day. Paleontologist Steve Etches coordinated the excavation of the head of the pliosaur from the overlying cliffs after his friend and fellow fossil enthusiast Phil Jacobs came across the tip of the monster's snout lying on the beach below. In life, this would look very similar to a crocodile's skull, but it's much, much larger. And of course, the rest of it was up in the cliff, and that's where it fell from. So we got a drone and drone the whole cliff to find out where it had fallen from. We located that after looking at the film footage. Basically, we had to get a climbing firm in to help us to get down to it because it was in the middle of a very steep, sheer cliff. And when I got finally got down to it, we realised the animal, when it finally settled on the seafloor, it was upside down. And from that was the next stage was actually work out a plan to excavate in the cliff, form a big cave, a massive great cave above it, down on it, and then clear it off and strengthen it and, and really extract it. And we did that with a very well-designed cage and a skid system. And then latterly it then came to my workshop for me to clean it and put it all back together did it come out as they say in the trade on block as it was still encased in big lumps of stone and you had to chip that away to reveal what was the real fossil inside the extraneous rock so it came out naturally it was still covered in what we call mudstone and you could you could see part of the bone but a lot of the bones had broken and it was in a huge block that weighed just over, we think, just over a ton. Uh, there's lots and lots of cavities in the skull where the eyes were, where the sort of muscles were. So that had to be cleaned right out. Philip found the initial discovery in April. It took from April till August to get it out of the cliff and back onto the sort of safety. It came into the museum a couple of months later and it probably took another six or nine months to get it back ready for display. The cleaned specimen, how big is that skull? It's nearly two metres long. On the side of it, if you're at the back of the skull, you could extend your arms and it would be about that wide. Goodness, that's a big head, isn't it? So how would the... If you extrapolate from that head to the Mm. whole creature, what would the rest Mm -hmm. of it have looked like and how big would the rest of it have been? We think it would be nine to ten metres. We have four big flippers, exactly like you see a turtle's got, and those would probably be about two metres long, each four of those very short neck and a barrel-shaped body so it's rather like if anyone knows what the Loch Ness monster looks like on that basis it's very similar to that big fat body it's a top of the food chain predator in other words this was the apex predator in the Kimmeridgean seas there's nothing bigger when it took food it took anything so it ate its own kinds and they would have fed on ichthyosaurs and anything smaller than themselves they would have fed on can you get inside the skull and, and see what the brain structure would have been and that kind of thing in those cavities? That's the really good thing about this. The whole skull, every element's there. 
and where you excavate the back of it you can see the brain case you can see everything that you need to see the only thing is you can't see the underside or the the palate the roof of the mouth because that's on the base if you get what i mean it's absolutely but extraordinary isn't it so what, it what did um, what did sir david attenborough make of it when he had a glimpse I think he was very impressed when he looked at it. We looked initially at the snipe because we cap scanned that to look inside it. But he got all these pits in there that indicate it's like sensing pressure. And it's one of those sort of things that you see. Crocodiles got the same things, but they're really well developed in this pliosaur. They're all over the front of the snipe. All these pits that they're joined by like a channel that go back into the sort of brain. When something swims through, they leave like an electrical discharge. It may be that that they could pick up on. But again, that's still quite new. People are still arguing over what these represent and what they really do. But the thing is with this skull, it's so good that because it's very large, we would like to have CAT scanned it, the whole thing. But there's no CAT scanner in Britain that's big enough to do this. And of course, anyone who's intrigued by what you've been saying can catch you prime time on the BBC on New Year's Day. Yep, that's right. Eight o'clock, BBC One, I think it is. The film which shows actually the extraction, which is a quite a difficult thing to do. I don't think anyone in their right mind would look at probably doing it, but we didn't want to lose this because we realise its significance and its scientific importance. Is the rest of it still in the cliff then? Yep. When we excavated around it, there was more and more bones going back into the cliff. And with the preservation that we've got in the skull, there's no reason to suppose the whole body's there. So there is still quite a bit to do. Absolutely fascinating, though, isn't it? That was Steve Etches, and do tune in to see the story for yourself. Now, those of us who've spent the last few weeks buying presents for loved ones will know that it can feel like one of the more stressful parts of Christmas. So is there anything we can do to make it easier on ourselves? Well, I've been speaking to David Robson, who's the author of The Expectation Effect, How Your Mindset Can Transform Your Life. I think the most important thing to remember, and it can actually be a source of great comfort to us, is that we don't have to worry too much about the expense of the present. So this is one of our key biases, is that we think the value is all important, especially if we're giving a present to a wealthy person, for example, or if we think that um, it's going to be compared to all of the other presents that someone's receiving. A ton of research shows expense just really isn't a big priority for the person receiving the gift. They care much more about how personal it is, you know, what it means to them and the other person. So what sorts of things should I weigh up then if I, if I want to go and buy a gift for, say, my wife or my brother? Right. Well, I mean, one of the things that we pay far too much attention to apart from expense is the kind of surprise factor. So we really want to see that huge smile or that little bit of shock on the day someone opens the present. What the research shows is that might delight someone in the moment, but in general, they're going to be far less satisfied with those kinds of surprising gifts than something that would be really useful, that would really contribute to their happiness in the long term. So a simple example of this is that, you know, we might buy a showy bunch of flowers that's already in bloom, but people are generally much more satisfied and feel closer to the gift giver if you buy them something that's going to bring happiness day after day over a longer period of time. So rather than that bouquet of flowers, you might buy them a house plant, for example. Someone wrote to one of the newspapers the other day and said that her husband got her a chainsaw. This can backfire, can't it? Because you end up with the gift that the person wants themselves and they give you saying this will be really useful in the garden thinking actually that's quite what I want and it's also kind of saying you don't do enough in the garden if you're not careful so get out there and do a bit more. Lots of gifts can be almost like backhanded compliments they can really carry these mixed messages and I think our kind of egotistical tendencies 
can play a big role other ways as well. So for example, there's research showing that we're really reluctant to buy someone a better version of a product than the one that we own ourselves. In fact, we might just not buy them that product at all. So, you know, it might be that you're buying someone in your family, like a new food mixer, and you'll get the version that's slightly worse than the one that you own because you don't want to feel in competition with them. You don't want to be jealous of the gift you're giving. Someone said to me once that other gifts that tend to go down very well are experiences. When you send someone off to a spa or to do that jump out of an aeroplane they've always wanted to do or that hot air balloon ride. People really value personal growth. Buying these experiences is one way that we can contribute to that. And there's lots of research showing that when people do create opportunities for self-expansion, it brings people closer together. And that trip to the spa or like tickets to a concert, you've got all the anticipation before that event happens. So that's bringing a lot of happiness to the person. And then it's sticking in their memories for months and years afterwards. You must have an example yourself of a particularly fantastic present you've had and a particularly awful present you've had. Care to share? I will do. First, the awful present. And I think this is a really good demonstration of that last point. (laughs) It was my birthday, actually, and one of my friends sent me in the post a second-hand cassette tape of Belinda Carlisle. (laughs) Um, And this was, you know, I wasn't a Belinda Carlisle fan, really. This was in the 2000s when cassettes weren't really you know, listen too much. And I, you know, really struggled to think why why, why she had chosen that. But I think reading this research, I'm sure that she felt there was some personal connection there. Like maybe in the past, I've mentioned that one particular song, or that we'd heard it at a party together, and, you know, brought back lots of memories to her that it just didn't bring back to me. But actually, I, I think she really made an effort there. And I should have been more grateful at the time rather than expressing my disappointment. In terms of The kind of best present I've received, that was my electric piano from my parents when I turned 18 and now 20 years later, and it's still something that brings me great pleasure. And it's something that every time I use it, I remember my parents, I remember that event, how exciting it was to open it. And it really does bring me closer to them, even when they're far away. I always dreaded clothes when I was little, especially socks and pants. But actually, now I'm a bit older, I'm quite grateful because it means I don't have to go and buy them for myself. David Robson there on The Psychology of Good Gift Giving. And speaking of gifts, it's time for this week's Question of the Week, which dwells upon that very subject. Georgia has been wondering... How many non-magic reindeer would it take to put a sleigh with one present for every child in the world? Thanks, Georgia. To get to the bottom of your Christmas conundrum, I'm calling on mathematician Ems Lord to help crunch the numbers. Hi, James. And what a great question. OK, after a bit of Googling, I'm going to assume that each reindeer can tug a hefty 136 kilograms. And let's also assume that there's approximately 2.4 billion under 18s eagerly awaiting their presence. And I suppose Ems will also need the weight of the average present. Exactly right, James. Now, based on a thorough investigation of the top 10 gifts from the John Lewis website this year, let's go for the average child's gift, weighing in at one kilogram. Sounds like we're all set for some maths magic. Drum roll, please. So, if we divide the total weight of those presents by the load each reindeer can carry, it leads us to the result that we'll need... 17,647,000 
and 59 reindeer to haul that sleigh of joy around the world. Woof, or whatever sound it is a reindeer makes. Are there even enough reindeer to pull this off? Another great question, James. Some more Googling tells me that Earth's current reindeer population sits at a mere 7 million. So, should the usual suspects, led by Rudolph, lose their magical powers, Father Christmas might just need to start thinking about a reindeer breeding project. Along with one giant poop scoop. Thanks, Ems, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, James. That's it, the last question of the week of 2023. The segment will be taking a little bit of a break over the festive period, but keep those questions coming in to chris at nakedscientists.com and we'll be ready to tackle them in the new year. And thanks very much to James. And what a brilliant answer from Ems Lord at the University of Cambridge. That's all we have time for. Do please join us on Tuesday, though, when Chris and Lee Barrow are going to be taking us through the naked gaming side to Christmas. What computer games are making big waves this season? Thanks to everyone who's been supporting our fundraiser. We're nearly 20% of the way towards our target. We're very grateful. If you'd like to send us a Christmas present, though, and help us keep the show on the road, it's nakedscientist.com forward slash donate. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.